This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. It was the first week of September, and this week, both President Trump and Joe Biden visited Kenosha, Wisconsin, following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, which led to substantial rioting and looting, which has since calmed down. The unrest in Kenosha and in some other American cities, including Portland, became a top political story, with Trump asserting that it offered a preview of an unsafe America under the leadership of Democrats who want to restrict how the police operate. Biden responded that this is all happening on Trump's watch, that one of Trump's own top advisors said violence and unrest are to his political benefit, and that the president seeks to raise the temperature in the country while he, as president, would lower it. But a wave of post-convention polls showed only a modest convention bounce for the president. The national polls were perhaps one point tighter than they were before both political conventions, suggesting both the conventions and this story may be having less effect on the campaign than either side thought. To talk about that, let's bring in our left, right, and center panel. As always, I'm your center. I'm joined by Michael Brendan Doherty, senior writer at National Review on the right, and on the left, Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Jamel, Joe Biden gave a big speech on this unrest in Pittsburgh on Tuesday. Were you satisfied with that speech? I probably was not the audience for that speech. I imagine that the people who were the audience for that speech were satisfied. It was a unequivocal condemnation of looting and rioting, which very much aimed at voters who um, might still be supportive of Black Lives Matter protests, but are obviously not supportive of uh, rioting and looting. It was meant to, I think, contextualize the disorder on the ground, not as a problem of crime, but as a problem of um, race relations, you might say, as a problem of uh, uh, police-related violence and police-related controversies, and thus, I think, try to turn the the valence away from where Trump wants it to be um, and towards an issue that Biden is sort of unquestionably stronger on. So in that regard, I think it I think it worked. I ask if you were satisfied with it in in part because a, a lot of the conversation about what Biden should say um, and some that continues to be conversation about what he should say has put it in the frame of like Biden needs a sister soldier moment here, um, which I think is a bit of a misapplication of something that happened in in 1992 with the the controversy with uh, Bill Clinton sort of taking on this relatively minor rap figure, where it, you, it, the the implication there is that Biden needs to say something that's going to upset a key part of his political base to demonstrate. Uh, to, to demonstrate his uh, his fealty to, to people in the center of the electorate. But it, it's not clear to me that this speech was that, because it's not clear to me it was objectionable to a key part of his coalition, and it's not clear to me that Biden needed to do that. Right. One sh- very strange thing about this entire controversy is it's, it's as if people have bought in to the president's casting of Biden as being a left-wing candidate, that in the primaries, Biden was the centrist. Um, he was accused by left-wingers of being a conservative. And so you know, to the extent that his base comprises um, – to the extent that his base has anything to do with the people on the ground, it's those people who are kind of the peaceful daytime protesters. It's not It's not going to be the people causing disorder. And so it's, it's kind of like a – it's very simple for him to say, oh, these, this is bad and I do not like it. I mean it should not happen. Um, I had written – last week or this week, that if there's anyone in the race who does need that kind of moment, it is it is Trump. Trump actually does need to disavow a portion of his sort of like super fandom um, in a way that could cause them to be upset with him, but would signal to the center that he is sort of capable of rising above 
um, the worst parts of his political coalition. Michael, a key part of Biden's line here has been basically, you know, Trump wants to say this is what will happen in Biden's America, but this is happening right now in Trump's America. And and I think a lot of people on the right have found that line to be a little simplistic, that by and large, the cities in which we are seeing this unrest are under Democratic administration. There is a policy dispute between Democrats and Republicans about how how aggressive police should be and what sort of restrictions they should face. And so I'm wondering what you make of the way that the president has laid out that distinction. And, and has he been able to make a plausible claim uh, that really, you know, to the extent this is happening on his watch, it's not his fault. And even though he hasn't been able to stop it now, he would be able to stop it in the second term. I don't think Trump has made that case especially well, but I do believe that the Republican Party, um, conservative media, Fox News have made that case for him. And the case was made throughout the Republican convention. And I think it was precisely the week of the Republican convention that changed the way Democrats in the Biden campaign were treating this issue. I mean, we did see a kind of whiplash among uh, a lot of commentators in the media saying throughout the summer, these incidents aren't serious. Look, here's a selfie of me in Portland eating a breakfast burrito and you um, don't see any um, uh, burning towers behind me. Uh, this isn't serious. And in fact, the, uh, the uprising is good and arson isn't violence. And then all of a sudden, after the Republican convention, there was a, a shift, a, a kind of response to Republican messaging saying, Actually, this is um, a serious issue, and it's Donald Trump's fault. Um, so I, I do think you can only say the the president or his party have been effective at creating that shift and that change in messaging or that change in emphasis uh, and, and kind of forcing the media to ask Joe Biden to give this speech and Joe Biden cutting an ad based on the speech, which I think is being circulated a lot more across um, – social media and media in swing states. Um, but I don't I don't know if it's really cut through and it hasn't shown up in the polls that people trust Donald Trump's uh, approach to these issues. But I, I mean, it is kind of undeniable that, you know, the mayors of Seattle and Portland, you know, endorsed the kind of movement in the streets when they felt they could endorse it and then quickly got out of their control. So I, I don't think people think blame Trump personally for the bulk of the unrest. Back in uh, October of 2016, Ross Douthat wrote columns for the New York Times on the risks that would have been posed in either a Clinton uh, presidency or a Trump presidency. And one of the things that he wrote about if Donald Trump became president was this. He said, quote, some of Trump's supporters imagined that his election would be a blow to left-wing activists, that his administration would swiftly reverse the post-Ferguson crime increase. This is a bit like imagining that a President George Wallace would have been good for late 1960s civil peace. In reality, Trump's election would be a gift to bad cops and riot-ready radicals in equal measure and his every intervention would pour gasoline on campuses and cities, not least because as soon as any protest movement had a face or leader, Trump would be on cable bellowing ad hominems at them, unquote. Uh, so, Michael, this is very similar to an argument that Joe Biden has been making uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, that basically Donald Trump turns up the temperature in the country, that he encourages this sort of unrest and makes our cities you know, less less peaceful than they otherwise would be. And so I'm wondering why you, you've written about that as, 
as being essentially an extortionist argument, saying, you know, elect me or else this will continue. Uh, but it seems to me it's just, isn't that descriptive in the same way that Douthat was being descriptive there four years ago, describing roughly would it, what would in fact happen over the ensuing years, that basically when you have a president who tries to ratchet up all these tensions in the country, you're going to get more of this stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a larger um, trend happening here. It's absolutely true that Trump pours gasoline on the fire. I mean, it started during his 2016 campaign when he encouraged people to punch each other out in at his rallies. But there is a larger process of kind of mutual radicalization happening where people are pointing to uh, actions happening on the other side of the political divide and saying, okay, look what you're making me do. Um, uh, you know, it was, it is notable that um, there has been this element in progressive commentary saying arson isn't violence, uh, this is an uprising, this is good, um, you know, this is a system we can't trust and we have to, we can't wait for legal means to uh, take their time before we force the issue on with direct action on the streets. And then on the other side, you say, if conservatives say, well, if that is the alternative to Donald Trump, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. And then as support rises for Donald Trump on the right and his approach, there's a bigger defection from the constitutional system or from the, the norms of, uh, you know, everyday law-abiding life and civic engagement. So I, I think this process can continue to go on even past Trump. I don't think necessarily the election of Biden just brings about normality as a matter of course. I think that's something that's going to take time uh, and the achievement of a more durable political settlement on some uh, key cultural issues. But um, it's certainly true that people are making excuses for bad behavior for themselves on the right. Jamil, I think it's at least a reluctance among a lot of people on the left uh, to speak in in criticism of property damage and, and looting that has happened in the context of, of some of these protests. I think that reluctance has diminished over the last week or so as there's been this sense that Joe Biden really needed to do this in order to shore up his political position. Um, but I'm wondering what you think is the outlook uh, for some of these the these issues and cities in the in the event that that Joe Biden is elected president, because it would go from you know when you have have situations like exist, and I, and I don't think we should overstate the extent to which the country is in a place of chaos, but there are certainly cities like Portland where there has been ongoing unrest. And I think a lot of the people, a lot of the Democrats in these cities sort of look at this and see it as a problem that Donald Trump fomented from the top. There's a real reluctance uh, to take uh, strong interventionist measures because it looks like doing what Donald Trump would, ha would, would have you do. But if there's a Democratic president, it sort of becomes something that is an embarrassment to Joe Biden if there's this ongoing unrest in cities. So I'm wondering if that's going to shift some of these politics at the local level back in a, in a direction that is less tolerant of some of the more problematic after effects of these protests. One of the issues is that the unrest in places like Portland and Seattle uh, and Minneapolis and Chicago, uh, though, as, and some, on some level, these are, these are local issues or the issues don't really cut across national politics in neat ways. And you can kind of imagine a alternate you know, universe in, in Earth one and a half, where uh, President Trump doesn't actually try to elevate this to the level of national issue, and its salience doesn't quite become what it is now, right? Um, that's probably, I think that might actually be a world where he's doing a little bit better politically. Um, but 
if you know if Biden is elected president uh, and and this stuff is still happening, I think we'll see its national salience go down somewhat, um, which would I think free mayors in those places to act with a heavier hand, and it would you know for I think the activist left uh, nothing much would change because the activist left doesn't view these democratic mayors as being allies in any way. It views them as being opponents and antagonists. I think that's sort of the, the change. It would just it would it would not become as big it would not be as big of a national issue uh, if Biden was in office because Biden wouldn't have you know very much interest in trying to elevate it to a national issue. And I think you're right, Josh, that uh, the mayors themselves might feel a little more a little freer to act against them. Now, having said that, there are ways if you, if you tie the disorder to, you know, police shootings and police brutality and such, there you know, there obviously are ways in which the federal government can influence how this stuff unfolds. Um, the consent agreements that the Obama Department of Justice put on a number of police departments did actually um, lead to, you know, lower amounts of, you know, police brutality in those places. And if that is the if that is the the uh, the effect that they have, then that may end up you know reducing these kind of big protests and, and disorder and such. Um, there's this you know the 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 conversation about this is so stuck on Trump and Biden and national politics and and even the mayors, but I think there are all these other actors involved and all these other incentives happening that shape these outcomes. And so, you know, police departments who feel that they have the support of the national government on, the, on their side and don't, you know, may not exercise forbearance, they may have exercised had there been a watchful eye over them. Um, uh, activists obviously acting kind of independently of national politics, um, the mayors and other local leaders feeling pressure, cross pressured and cross pressured, not by, you know, what is happening in the national polls, but what is happening amongst their you know particular constituencies whether that is you know affluent urban residents whether that is suburban residents but whether that is the police departments themselves you know that those are the things that are going to influence the course of this um and to the extent that biden matters when he's president it'll be you know the extent to which he makes a choice to elevate this to the uh to the place of national concern yeah. So, Michael, if if that's the case for a calmer urban environment under uh, President Biden, that you wouldn't have the president rhetorically pouring gasoline on this stuff, uh, and that he would it would sort of create more political space for Democratic leaders in these cities to 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 restore somewhat more order. I assume you disagree with that forecasting. What what's your case for why this situation would be calmer in a second Trump term? I'm not. I'm not sure it. If um, I disagree, I do think it's possible Democrats would have a freer hand under a Democratic president to deploy the police in a way that would quell unrest where it pops up and it would probably still upset the activist left, um, though the activist left may respond you know, less uh, hysterically uh, in, in a situation where Trump is not president. I mean, I think the larger issue, I think I think last week, uh, Jamel Bowie accused himself of being the David Broder in the conversation, the kind of <laughs> centrist. And this week, I think I'll play the role. I think um, Americans 
that are engaged in politics, um, they engage on this question of whether an action or an individual is emblematic of a movement or exceptional to a movement. And incidents like the shooting of a Donald Trump supporter in Portland, which was met um, by activists on the street with cheers and, and one activist getting on stage and saying that Portland protected its community and took out the trash. I mean, there are a lot of conservatives who look at that and think, is that emblematic of the left? Now, of course, mathematically, we know that is not true, that this, that, that is an exceptional incident. But in a sense, they look at it the same way. I think many liberals looked at the death of Heather Heyer at, in Charlottesville said, okay, is this, are these tiki torch um, terrorists emblematic of the right as a whole? And I think it is until there is a larger cooling down of the temperature in um, our cultural politics, there's just going to be this constant temptation to see uh, yourself as uniquely threatened or menaced by the other side in these kind of exceptional events uh, and to see the, the, the malice in them as emblematic of your opponents. And I think that is what's driving the intensity in our politics right now more than any individual figure. Let's take a break. I'll be back with Michael Brennan Doherty of National Review and Jamel Bowie of the New York Times to talk about coronavirus testing. You're listening to Left, Right and Center. You're hearing from our left, right, and center, and we want to hear from you too. Tweet us at LRCKCRW and download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right, and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight, one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after, in 1980. But sometimes, legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang, on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, Hanif Abduraki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm Josh Barrow of New York Magazine. On the right is Michael Brendan Doherty, senior writer at National Review. On the left is Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times. Colleges and universities around the country are reopening, and often it is not going so hot. Students have returned from all over the country to live together in close quarters, and they are socializing because they are college students. As Chris Hayes from MSNBC put it, college dorms are just cruise ships with crappier food and younger patrons. And we're starting to see cruise ship-like COVID outcomes at some colleges and universities. At places like the University of North Carolina, large outbreaks have meant rapidly shifting back to online instruction just days or weeks after students have showed up to campus. For these reasons, a lot of universities have decided that all online instruction is the only safe option in these conditions. But the University of Illinois is trying something different, testing of students and other personnel on a truly massive scale. The university has been running 15,000 to 18,000 COVID tests a day, which has often been about 2% of all the coronavirus tests run in the entire country, just for one university. It's been using a rapid saliva test that was developed by university researchers under an emergency use authorization from the FDA. The idea behind the program is to identify and isolate asymptomatic COVID infections early before they turn into huge outbreaks. 
So obviously, this raises some questions. Is it working? Is it going to continue working? And if it is, should we be doing this in lots of other settings to allow a more normal operation in more parts of our society? To talk about that, Dr. Rebecca Smith joins us now. She is an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of Illinois. Hello, Dr. Smith. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So first of all, Dr. Smith, can you tell us about this test? How is this different from the tests that we've had such issues with in terms of of sufficient availability around the country? Our PCR test uses saliva. So people dribble saliva into a tube. That tube is heated for a period of time, which inactivates the virus, makes it a lot safer for people in the lab. Uh, A little bit of detergent and reagent is added, and then they run the PCR test. This is called a direct PCR, meaning you don't have to isolate all the viral uh, RNA before you run the PCR, which makes it a lot faster. Also, one of the bottlenecks we were seeing, uh, especially in the spring, was a lack of viral transport media, which is the stuff that your nasal swab is stuck into, and even swabs. We get around that. All we need is a tube for you to dribble your saliva into and some very uh, easily, readily available uh, reagents. So it it's faster and it uses fewer supplies that are subject to bottlenecks. Is this a less sensitive test than some of the other tests that we've been seeing? Is this going to miss certain positive cases? It is not less sensitive. It may be more sensitive, although we don't have evidence to show that. Based on spiked samples where you put in a certain known amount of virus, we have a a lower limit of detection, which means we can detect fewer viral particles. Uh, That doesn't necessarily translate to sensitivity in actual people, but uh, we, we don't expect to have any lower sensitivity than the nasal swabs. So that sounds really good. I mean, why? what is stopping us from rolling this out in a lot more places and doing a lot more testing in the way that the University of Illinois has been doing? Uh, we are working on that right now. The, the one thing that was holding us back was waiting for the FDA's emergency use authorization. Uh, we didn't feel that we could roll this out broadly without that approval. Now that we are under that umbrella, we are in the process of rolling it out. Uh, our organization has spread to now we have Shield Illinois, which is rolling it out to the rest of the state of Illinois, and also Shield T3, which is an organization to make our process available outside of just the state of Illinois. Uh, We've had a lot of interest from other universities, from companies, from some other countries even. Can you talk a little bit about how this has been working on the ground at the University of Illinois? Because I, I saw that there's been this order put in place that students are supposed to sort of shelter in place. It's, it's not a, I gather it's not a total lockdown. In fact, they're still supposed to go to class so long as they've had a recent negative test. But the officials at the university have decided that the positivity rate on these tests is high enough. There are enough cases that you need to keep people uh, doing less uh, in-person interaction than you otherwise might. Is that is that a sign that this is not going as it was expected? Or, or did you sort of expect to, to have to do that? at certain points during the semester? We had hoped to avoid this. Uh, unfortunately, we had made the somewhat strong assumption that once students knew they were positive, they would follow public health guidelines and isolate. We found last weekend that that wasn't the case, unfortunately, and that some people who should have been in isolation were socializing in rather large parties. 
So this current situation is to correct for that. Uh, we had a growth in cases, as you'll see with our public dashboard. We identified that very early. And I'll say most of these cases are asymptomatic. So SHIELD is working as it was designed. We found an outbreak before it got too big. And we took steps to mitigate that. First is to reduce socializing to a large extent so that we can find all of the cases that have been exposed. And then moving forward, we'll think of other ways that we can improve the situation so that we don't see this same spike in cases once the uh, stay-at-home regulation is lifted. I should note when when we talk about a spike in cases, your your seven day positivity rate on these tests is about one point three percent, is my understanding. So that would be by a lot of the standards that we're seeing in other jurisdictions. Um, that that doesn't sound like an especially high positivity rate to me. So is it the are, is it just sort of an abundance of caution that you've gone to this measure at, at such a low rate? So the positivity rate at University of Illinois does not equate to positivity rate in other places because every single person on campus is tested twice a week. So the sheer number of tests means that our positivity rate is going to be a lot lower. Uh, And for comparison, before students came back to campus, our positivity rate on campus was 0.2%. So we we have a higher standard for our positivity rate because we are testing so many people so frequently. Uh, what we are looking at is the number of cases and the clustering of those cases. We we have noticed a uh, pattern in the number of cases and where they appear, and that tipped us off to what was happening so that we could intervene early. Jamel, you live in a college town in Charlottesville. I'm wondering what you think listening to this, because I gather whatever they're doing at the University of Virginia is significantly less sophisticated. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, significantly less sophisticated is a huge understatement. Um, there isn't really much of a plan at all. Students will be coming back. The university has reserved several dormitories for uh, quarantine, uh, you know, bedding um, where, where st- infected students can go. But there isn't a mass testing regime on this scale. I think there are some tests, but the, I don't think the university is um, sort of systematically testing. Uh, there is, you know, there are social distancing guidelines, but sort of no one expects college students to be able to adhere to them. Um, I think, you know, if if the University of Virginia had this kind of program uh, at hand, mass rapid testing, um, constant testing, then the city of Charlottesville would feel much better about the uh, the return of students. But even then, uh, you know, this all depends on students being able to behave in responsible ways. And that's just that's just the X factor. And I'm I myself am, un- am unconvinced that uh, a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds will be able to refrain from, um, you know, gathering packed together in, in tight corners and bars and restaurants, um, at frat houses, uh, in dorms and apartments, uh, and keep the, uh, the virus from spreading into the community at large. Yeah, Michael, this is the thing that has sort of driven me crazy about the, the president's 
response here is that, you know, the, the president clearly would like the country to go back to normal more, uh, wants colleges and, and K through 12 schools having in-person instruction. He wants college football, all of these things. And yet he complains that there's too much testing and it's finding too many cases and it makes our numbers look bad compared to other countries. And he, you know, it, it, he could have started in January making it a priority to, to roll out a lot more capacity here so that a lot more places could be running initiatives similar to what you're seeing at the University of Illinois. And it would have made the rest of his agenda more feasible, but he did not do that at all. No, he didn't. I mean, the administration did lift some hurdles along the way to get test testing numbers up into the spring and early summer, but there hasn't been the urgency for the kind of rapid testing they're doing uh, at the university. The um, there hasn't been rapid movement on home testing, which is is a real possibility. Um, you know, but at the same time, I do think some officials, I mean, we've seen in New York City in the past couple of weeks where infection rates are below where where the guidelines say uh, they have to be for school to be open and school districts will close suddenly in a kind of uh, fit. So I do wonder, uh, you know, if there are are other factors driving people's fear. And I'd be curious to know if... Um, at the college level, if you have a positivity rate of, of below 2% on these tests, I'm wondering how are the students doing? I mean, how are the infected students doing? Uh, what percentage of them are being hospitalized? What percentage are being um, deemed serious cases? Uh, because I, I, I want to know a little bit more about the the rate at which uh, treatment is improving in the country. Um, and and that could help inform people about what risks they're willing to take or what guidelines we should actually have going forward. Dr. Smith, what are you seeing in, in that regard in, in Urbana-Champaign? So our, our hospital tells us that they have not seen any students coming into the ER for COVID. We have not seen a spike in hospitalized cases. Uh, one one thing I will say is that hospitalizations are a lagging indicator, meaning hospitalization comes up later than test positivity. So because we're catching tests, uh, these cases early, we may be seeing something that could rise in the coming week. We're hoping it won't because, again, these these are younger people who have tend to have a lower rate of symptoms. And I understand the concern that, well, we're testing all these people who don't, who aren't likely to have severe disease now, but there are two things to push back on that. One is that there is good evidence that even people who have mildly symptomatic cases can have long-term impacts on their health. The second is that students don't live in a bubble, especially in a college town like this, there are students living within a block of me. Uh, there are students living all over town. They go to the same grocery stores. They go to the same restaurants. They interact with people in the town. And not all of those people are young and healthy. And to be honest, not all people on campus are young and healthy. We have students who have pre-existing conditions who need to be protected. So we need to consider not just whether or not we are seeing a spike in hospitalizations, but can we prevent infection altogether? K-12 
Can you talk about other settings in which these uh, th- this approach with this very high level of testing and then the tracing and isolation of people who test positive or who are or who have been exposed? Can can that be applied in other places? Should we be testing people when they land at airports? Would this allow us to have certain large public events where you could have testing like this beforehand? What um what what could we do in society if we really had the ability to run many more tests of this sort? So I think the the shield test, the which is the one that we're running here at the University of Illinois, I think that it works very well for situations like universities, K through twelve schools, businesses. Uh, organizations where people go on a regular basis, because we have rapid tests, but within 48 hours rapid, not within 15 minutes. I think if we want to talk about testing at airports or at events, we need to move to the much more rapid testing, such as the antigen tests, which will have a higher false positive rate but would be effective at reducing the number of people at one of those events from reducing the probability that those people are infected while also not taking two days ahead of time to be tested so that you can be sure you can go to an event. I want to talk a little bit about the possibility of a vaccine because there's been a fair amount of news around this in in recent weeks. The CDC has been telling states to be ready for mass distribution of a vaccine in the fall, and the FDA may give emergency use authorization to a vaccine that has not yet completed its stage three effectiveness trials if they think the vaccine is promising. Uh, Dr. Smith, what's the cost-benefit analysis to think about here? If If a vaccine is highly effective, might we know that before the phase three trial is done? Could there be a good reason? reason to do that sort of early distribution? or Because, I mean, a lot of people are looking at that skeptically uh, as the president seeking specific political timing, which makes them wonder about the, uh, about the soundness of the, uh, of the science there. So it's easier to answer this question if I go into a little bit of how a phase three trial for a vaccine actually works. Please which do. is that you, you enroll people and you randomize them to either the vaccine or a placebo. And then you let them go about their lives and see who gets infected. This takes time. You cannot do that quickly. There have been thoughts to speed up the process by taking people who are at low risk for symptoms and actually exposing them to the virus after they've been vaccinated. This raises ethical issues. It's a a large risk because we don't know for sure all of the factors that make somebody at risk for serious symptoms. And even those trials would take one to two years. So saying that we will have data on whether or not a vaccine is effective by November, it's not true. There is no possible way that we can have a phase three trial showing positive results that early. The other thing the phase three trials do is look for side effects, because the last thing we want is a vaccine that protects against coronavirus, but has worse side effects. In phase one and phase two trials, we look for those, but with very small numbers of people. Phase three trials is larger numbers of people were more able to then understand how many harms come from the vaccine compared to the protection given uh, from infection. And that, again, that takes time. We have to watch these people. And especially a lot of these vaccines seem to be two-dose vaccines, which means it takes a month to even finish giving the vaccine. 
So I, I think the timeline of expecting a vaccine rollout in November is wishful thinking. Even if the science doesn't support it, I think uh, people are somewhat concerned that, that it will happen anyway for political reasons. And Michael, what do you, what do you make of those worries uh, from Democrats about the president playing politics with the FDA here? Let me put the bottom line here. I don't think there's any plausible world we're going to encounter where you going into a medical office will have to trust, personally trust Donald Trump before a needle is, is stuck in you. Um, Donald Trump can't cook this up by himself and he can't release it without the opinion of not only the federal agencies, but without incurring the opinions of medical authorities who have no relation to um, the White House. So people will will make their own judgments. And, and I agree with um, the good doctor that I don't think um, – even a vaccine rolled out at maximum speed would not be getting to a massive amount of uh, potential users by election time. Uh, it would just be something coming into view. Uh, and then lastly, uh, Donald Trump hasn't shown himself to be in a hurry um, on this virus pretty much from the beginning. Um, he may want the vaccine because he knows that that is the, the kind of end game for the issue and that anything short of it, his opponents can still say the crisis isn't over, but he hasn't been in a hurry. And I, I just don't think you're going to see this be realized. I mean, his his hope that it's going to be out before the election or in October, it's probably vaporware along the lines of hoping that Google is going to launch a nationwide site that you can uh, type your name into and get directed to a test site at Target. Now, that didn't happen. I don't expect a, an October surprise vaccine. I think that's pretty much right. I mean, it's very clear that President Trump wants an October surprise vaccine. He wants to be able to say, you know, right on the the, the right as the elections happening, that look, I've I've solved the coronavirus pandemic, but I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, there's been nothing thus far to suggest that the president is capable of any follow through, not just the president, but his aides, sort of his his connection to the federal bureaucracy. Um, part of the story of the Trump presidency is how weak he is in that regards. So, yeah, I don't I I understand the worry, right? I understand the 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 worry that the president is so desperate to have a magic cure to all of this that'll cut any corners to make it happen. But I'm just unpersuaded that he'll actually be able to follow through on his desire to cut any corners to make this happen. Dr. Smith, can you help us look a little bit forward into 2021 and 2022? You, you note the 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 roadblocks to getting this vaccine out that fast. Also, to the extent it, there is a, an effective vaccine, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be 98 or 99 percent effective. It may greatly reduce the odds uh, of coronavirus infection, may may significantly reduce the severity in the unlikely event that you do contract the coronavirus. But it, it, it's not necessarily going to be this silver bullet thing where life goes completely back to normal. So what do you what sort of measures are we going to need through next year? Do you expect that, you know, to the extent that we uh, scale up these sorts of testing regimes, that that's going to be something that's going to be with us for a significant period, more than just a few months? Yes. In short, uh, we need to scale up testing and we need to get more public buy-in on the mitigation strategies that we know work, the, the masks and the distancing. Because even if we get a vaccine uh, that is 
somewhat effective. And we've got a floor on there that they're expecting at least 50% efficacy. We have to then scale up the production of the vaccine. It has to go out to the right people at the right times. And the success of a vaccination campaign depends on the willingness of people to get the vaccine in part. And so we need to uh, work on that aspect. So uh, make sure that the vaccine is safe and effective and make sure that we message that to people so that they understand that this is the way forward. Because if we have a great vaccine and people don't take it, we will be right back to where we are. So in the meantime, what we need to do is test and uh, control our own exposures. Dr. Rebecca Smith, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Illinois, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I've been talking with Jamel Bowie of The New York Times and Michael Brendan Doherty of National Review. We will be back to talk about the CDC and evictions. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm your host, Josh Barrow. On the right is Michael Brendan Doherty, senior writer at National Review, and on the left, Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times. Uh, so the Centers for Disease Control has done something quite unusual. It has, it has issued this rule saying that landlords are not to evict tenants with family incomes of less than $100,000 a year, which obviously is most rental tenants in the United States. Uh, the justification is that this is necessary to prevent the spread of coronavirus, that if you evict people from their homes, they're going to be more likely to get sick and give illness to people, um, which sounds true enough as a, as, a, as a matter of epidemiology, but seems like a really remarkable use of the CDC's power, and frankly one that is unclear whether they have the legal authority. This is another thing that the administration is doing as an executive action, trying to get around the fact that there has not been a, a, an additional coronavirus relief package to extend some of the relief uh, that was offered through the spring and the early part of the summer. And so, Michael, I want to, first of all, get your view on that. This seems like the sort of thing that Republicans would go completely crazy if a Democratic administration tried to use C CDC public health authority to make housing policy. What's the justification for this? Well, I mean, it's it's precisely what you say. I mean, it's it's an, an attempt by the administration to find an old, um, basically obscure and, and unknown clause in uh, you know emergency legislation about pandemics and guidance from the CDC in order to jam through essentially relief for for people who are out of work, can't work, um, can't earn money to, to make rent. Um, without Congress acting, I'm, I'm not surprised that they looked for something like this. I, I can say that at National Review, we've run several uh, pieces already uh, criticizing the move as an, an, an astounding bit of overreach that um, not only... Uh, 
is kind of abusive of authority, but it kind of undermines confidence in the system altogether, because, precisely because it seems so arbitrary, um, right? I, I think most landlords didn't have any clue that the CDC could issue this kind of order. Um, I think there's still an open question whether landlords will even abide by it um, if they suspect that uh, it's going to be found unconstitutional or circuit court will throw it out um, in, the, in the meantime. And landlords do often have uh, ways of being persuasive uh, against their tenants, which we may find unfortunate, uh, but which the CDC doesn't have exactly the kind of police force to enforce this rule. So I, I'm I'm kind of skeptical about how this will play out, but it, it shows how desperate the times are with a dysfunctioning Congress. Jamel, I, the administration has been having more success than I expected in cobbling together something that resembles a relief package through executive authority. This, uh, the, this move by the administration to give out $300 a week in enhanced unemployment benefits by transferring disaster relief money for FEMA, that initially states had been saying, well, we don't know how to administer that, and we're not sure we're going to participate. In practice, most states are already giving out that money or will be giving it out shortly, which isn't the full $600 a week that the unemployed were getting prior, but it is still a substantial enhancement uh, over normal benefits. We also saw the jobs report for August that came out on Friday morning uh, that showed, once again, more than 1 million jobs added. And so the the pace of the economic recovery maybe isn't as fast as we would hope it would be, but we're about halfway back from from where we were in terms of job losses at the start of the pandemic. And it's making, I'm looking at this and thinking, that we, we probably can get to the election with no COVID relief package without it becoming politically necessary. There's this agreement now that the, the this September 30 deadline when there would be a government shutdown that we thought might force a COVID relief deal. Now Nancy Pelosi and Stephen Mnuchin have a deal that there will be, they'll keep the government open without necessarily agreeing on a new COVID package. And it seems like the economy will, will, will squeak through that if we don't do it, even though it's not the ideal thing, which makes me think that Congress not absolutely needing to act will not pass a COVID relief package. My concern, in addition to Michael's concern, that um, it's not great for the executive branch to cobble together a bunch of spare parts um, for uh, a pur- to you for a purpose that they were never intended to spend money. I I would I, just as a as a general matter, I think Congress, if Congress wants relief, if the administration wants relief, um, they should pass a law to do it. So beyond that brought the, the accrual to uh, of, of more power and influence to the executive branch. I, I also think that if you're looking beyond kind of the two months or so to the election, you know, it's, there's no guarantee that after November into the 2021 um, that the economy won't suffer another setback. Um, if, if, you know, infections begin to run out of control in the winter, um, we could very much see that. And so to, the advantage of legislation is that you can tailor it to conditions that you may not be able to predict. You can have relief be an automatic stabilizer. You can um, have it run, you know, for as long as unemployment is above a certain level. Um, you don't have to worry about putting together these kludges to make sure money gets to people. And you can also um, be more generous if you want to be more generous. And so I, you know, my preference. Beyond the fact that I, I I would prefer a much more generous relief package, a much more um, comprehensive effort 
to keep people in their homes, to keep uh, people afloat, to keep businesses afloat. The kind of collapse of the small business economy uh, is, uh, to put it lightly, very bad. And um, I think one of the failures of all of this has been um, Congress not devising a much more efficient way to keep that from happening. Um, Beyond the substantive stuff, it just sets a bad precedent in the event that Biden wins and takes office, sets his administration up um, in a bad way to not actually have legislation on the books um, for addressing the continuing COVID crisis. We have reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Michael Brennan Doherty, it's your soapbox. My rant is against unnamed sources. Um, Listeners may know that uh, this week, The Atlantic ran a piece by Jeffrey Goldberg with four unnamed sources in the military uh, saying that Trump said very atrocious things about our war dead and injured Uh, All these things are plausible um, that he would say them. And it is almost certain that one of the sources is Jim Mattis, who worked in the administration, uh, based on just context clues in the piece itself. Um, I think it is a continuing problem that unnamed sources emerge at kind of key moments to interrupt what should be a policy debate about foreign policy. We saw as Donald Trump a few months ago made a couple of moves to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, an unnamed source, just one, put the Russian bounty story into the New York Times. Now we have four unnamed sources coming out on the same day that the Trump administration uh, actually appointed a restrainer foreign policy voice to be ambassador to Afghanistan. Um, Jim Mattis knew that Donald Trump was an awful human being when he went to work for him. It would not be a surprise if Jim Mattis um, thinks these things are awful, but he should come out and say them. And if he thinks the administration has bad foreign policy views, he should come out and attach his name to that statement as well. Let's get it out in the open. Jamel Bowie, what's on your mind? So I have been, my wife and I rather, have been making our way through the filmography of Spike Lee. We recently watched Malcolm X, the um, 1982 biopic of uh, the civil rights leader. And it's not, you know, a shocking take. uh, Denzel Washington gives uh, probably one of the finest performances of his career in what is a big, broad, sprawling movie, and he is sort of the steady point throughout. And I just want to rant against the uh, 1993 Academy Awards (laughs) for giving the Best uh, Actor nomination and Oscar to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman, a movie that effectively no longer exists, uh, and rejecting or not giving the award to Washington, who in that performance maybe gives the best lead biopic performance of all time. It is a big, ambitious epic of a movie that I I really think is worth revisiting. For my rant, there's been a lot of discussion lately, including on NPR and in The New Yorker, about this book, In Defense of Looting, by Vicki Osterweil, who is a radical writer. 
But I think that's kind of a misnomer, because only some extremely marginal figures actually endorse the thesis of this book, which is that looting is a positive good because private property is a bad thing. Uh, this is not a position of any significant uh, component of the Democratic Party coalition, whether elected officials or activists uh, or commentators. And so why is this being described as a controversy? I mean, part of it is that people within the, the center left broadly described, they don't like being put in a position of criticizing people who are perceived as on their side. But I think part of it, at least as regards Twitter, is that people have decided that literal communists are cool in the high school sense, that some of these writers who are so radical that even if even if you don't agree with what they're saying, it just feels uncool to openly disagree with them. You will be made fun of by anonymous people on Twitter with roses in their display names. Uh, and for some reason, that is a significant motivating force, even though when you would write down the thesis of this book, almost nobody would actually say anything other than that it is wrong. And so I think people just need to admit that they are not radicals, that they are not opposed to private property, uh, and that Vicki Osterweil is wrong, and therefore her book is not controversial at all. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Jamel Bowie, Michael Brennan Doherty, and Rebecca Smith. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director is Kat Yor. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 